So on my drive home from Wellsprings, I pass a little church with a roadside sign. This past week it read, Three words to live by. Thou shalt not. (laughs) Three words to live by. Thou shalt not. Kind of depressing, isn't it? To think that some folks believe that the essentials of life can be boiled down to a negative statement. I think it also illustrates that there are really two different kinds of religious faith and spirituality. There are faiths that tell, and there are faiths that show. I think that many of us are here this morning and a part of Wellsprings because we left a faith that told us what we had to believe. It seems so oppressive. But there's one thing more. Besides, it's just too easy to tell or to be told. It costs me nothing other than my hot air to tell you something. But showing our faith, sharing our faith, that requires effort, requires honesty. It's where our integrity, or dare I say even sometimes our lack of it, comes through. When we embody what we believe, we see the details. We see the whole of a life, not just the words printed on a page. It's like saying another three words, three words I believe that are much better than thou shalt not, but three other little words, I love you. Much more powerful than thou shalt not, but it only takes a second to say, I love you. To show someone that you love them. That requires that we give so much more of ourselves. I've always found spiritual stories that show, rather than religious teachings that tell, to be much more important to my own spiritual development. Kind of like an ancient story, the story of the prophet Elijah in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, in this particular story, Elijah is having a really, really rotten day. It is not going well for him. See, because he's a prophet. And what happens to prophets? Well, the world likes to kill them. With all that language about, you know, justice and righteousness, and don't forget those who are most vulnerable in society, well, prophets get themselves in a lot of trouble. And so in this particular story, what has happened is that Elijah has run away. He's run away, and he's hiding in a cave in the Sinai Desert. It's called Mount Horeb. It has a different name as well that some of you might know. It's actually Mount Sinai. A lot of stuff in the Hebrew Scripture sort of returns back around to Mount Sinai. And they have this little dialogue, God and Elijah. God says... Why are you here? Elijah, to paraphrase, says, Well, they've forsaken you, and they want to kill me. I'm going to get the worst of this bargain, I can tell you. I'm alone out here. I'm alone, and I'm scared. And God does something interesting. Instead of saying, Everything's going to be okay. Instead of telling Elijah, Just believe me. The divine has a different question. God says, go stand at the entrance of the cave because my spirit is about to pass by. And so Elijah does this. And we see first in the text a great wind, a huge tornado that comes by and uproots trees and smashes boulders. But then the text says, but God was not in the wind. And then after that, a huge earthquake that shakes the foundations of the very world. But the text says, God was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a great fire that threatens to consume everything, everything that Elijah sees. And then the text says again, but God was not in the fire. And then, 
and men. Elijah hears something he can barely pick up. Alternatively, sometimes it's translated as a still small voice or sometimes as a sheer silence. And then the sound of sheer silence. God calls out to Elijah again. The same dialogue. Why are you here? I'm here because I'm scared. I'm here because I'm alone. They've forsaken you and want, they want to kill me. But everything has changed. Everything has changed. Elijah wipes off his face, the text says, and he's done hiding. He returns back to his life as a prophet. He heads back to who he is. He's able to become once again what his call is. He gets clarity. He gets clarity for after all that noise, which really wasn't God, wasn't the divine, wasn't sacred, he hears only in the sheer silence. He hears once again the call of his own heart. He gets a beginner's mind. He is able to begin once again. The wind, the earthquake, the fire, they could be taken to represent all of the stuff that's spinning inside of Elijah's head as fearful as he is. But the sacred was not contained in any of them. That tumult of fear and worry and distraction. In the end then, the noise did not contain it. He moves past all of them and recalls who he is. He remembers he's a prophet. He begins again. He clears away his fears, for God is not in them. Elijah regains his focus. This morning is the second in the message series entitled In Praise of Amateurs. Recall from last week, if you were here, that an amateur is someone who has and retains a true love of their subject. What they do is motivated by what they love. An amateur has, by definition, a steadiness and consistency of purpose because they know what matters most. They always remember what they love. And because they remember what they love, they remember who they are. They're able to locate their true north on their interior compass. Just like the prophet Elijah. When the tough times hit, they can break it down and remember the essentials. They have, amateurs do, they possess what many spiritual traditions call a beginner's mind, being able to affirm what is really most important and then letting the rest drop away. Breaking it down to the essentials is a great and essential religious gift. Jewish tradition tells of a non-Jew who came to the great Rabbi Shammai about 2,000 years ago saying he would convert to Judaism if Shammai could convince him and teach him of the whole Torah. But with this one caveat, he had to do it while hopping up and down on one foot. Well, Shammai thought that this non-Jew was mocking him, and so he raced after him with a ruler, the tradition says. Maybe some of you know this from your parochial school days. He raced after him with a ruler. Thinking he was being mocked, he responded with anger. He didn't even try to answer the question. He met that challenge with rage, rather than with clarity. But there's another story. Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand, converted this person by telling him, while hopping up and down on one foot, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole of Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and study. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Can't hop too well, sorry. Hillel broke it down. He started at the beginning. He knew there was more, yes, to be found in Scripture and any sacred tradition, but he found its essence, and he was able to share its essence. It's the same thing with our lives. Taking it all in at once, 
Having a God's eye view of our lives, that's impossible. Trying to see too much all at once causes spiritual vertigo. We start to react to life. We start to imagine things. We start to spin in our minds out of control. And eventually where our minds go and our spirits go, there our bodies will go eventually too. We start to spin out of control. Emotionally, there's a big word for this. Catastrophizing. Say it with me. Catastrophizing. We all do it. I imagine you do too. You know, you just get a little bit of bad news. Someone you care about or upon whom you depend tells you, we need to talk. And you hear it as, we need to talk. Maybe all they want to talk to you about is the shopping list or where you left your car keys. But in the back of your mind, it starts. What's wrong? What have I done? Oh my God, the relationship must be over. I must be getting fired. Or maybe the doctor says one day, we found some irregularities. We'd like to bring you back for more tests. And in the next moment in your mind, you are planning your own funeral. Catastrophizing. We're like our friend from this morning's drama. $2,000, how will we ever pay that? Maybe in your case it's $500 or $200 or $15,000. Whatever it is, the amount doesn't matter. It's how we receive it. How will we ever pay that? We panic. We spin away from the uncertainty of our present towards some awful future. But that awful future doesn't even exist yet. It may never exist, but there we are, existing in a fantasy more certainly than we are actually living in our own lives. We go from zero to anxious in under 30 seconds. We're a high-performing worry machine. We could solve our energy crisis with the amount that we worry sometimes. The most consistent difficulty that I have seen in my years of offering pastoral counseling and understanding my own spiritual path, the most consistent difficulty I have seen it's rarely the initial problem or the initial sorrow itself. The most damage we cause ourselves is from our complicating and complex reactions that we have to our initial problems. The way that we can refuse, absolutely refuse, to take first things first. This can add misery to heartache and make us think that just because, just because our train and our travel seems to be heading off the tracks just for a little bit, that somewhere up around the bend, we are all the way off the tracks. FDR was right. FDR was absolutely right. Fear of fear itself is our greatest enemy. But maybe alternatively, maybe alternatively it's something good that we anticipate happening to us. We think we're going to get a promotion or a friend or a loved one is coming to visit. And we imagine, we imagine, we project forth how happy we will be. So I'm kind of like waiting for that what, for that pot to boil. And we sit there and we wait and we wait and we say, oh, when it boils, it's going to be so good. I'll be able to cook my food. And when that person arrives, I'm going to be so happy. And then we get there to that day. Eh. We've built it up so much in our minds that what could possibly compare to what we project outward? And we start to think despairingly. Maybe it's even worse than when we're sad, when happiness doesn't pay off. We start to think that maybe happiness itself is an illusion because I keep pursuing it, and yet it keeps receding. This is what having a beginner's mind helps us to do. Stop chasing our lives and start living them. Returning to what we know, returning to here, and returning to now. Having a beginner's mind is remembering what we have to remember and remembering what we must forget. Remembering what we need to remember. Your spirits, your friends, 
your community, all the essential stuff when you break it down, the kind of stuff that when you do make, and I hope you do this from time to time, make a gratitude list, that's the stuff on it. All the rest is just commentary. And sometimes it's just noise. Remembering what we need to forget and remembering what we need to remember. It's like a simple meditation I learned years ago that I always practice when I feel myself mentally and spiritually spinning off. Breathe in. What am I? Breathe out. I don't know. Breathe in. What am I? Breathe out. I don't know. Three other little great little words to live by, not like thou shalt not, but perhaps as a good companion to I love you. Oh my God, what will the test reveal? I don't know. What do they want to tell me? Am I fired? Am I dumped? I don't know. Try it with me now. Breathe in. What am I? Breathe out. Don't know. Breathe in. What am I? Breathe out. I don't know. We're not in control of everything. The story isn't finished yet. We don't know. We clear out the junk, all that stuff that clutters our lives, clutters our mind, clutters our spirits that we can't know yet, and we make room by doing this for what is actually there. We face what is in front of us. Just like the writer Anne Lamott talked about in her great book, Instructions on Writing and Life, she told a story about her younger brother who had a report that was, he had six weeks to do it in when he was maybe in the fourth or fifth grade. It was on birds, blue jays and robins and all kinds of stuff. But he kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and putting it off until finally the night before it was due, he was facing the most anxious thing in the world if you're a writer, a blank piece of paper. Not a single bird written about yet. And he began to get really frustrated, not just because he didn't think he could do it, but for all the time that he had wasted. Feeling overwhelmed, he started to cry. He would fail. He'd be a failure. Dad, he said, Dad, I said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to begin. It's too much. You can write it. You can do it, Dad said. But how? How do I do it? And Lamont's dad said something that she carries with her to this day. Bird by bird, son. Bird by bird. Bird by bird, step by step, a single day at a time, one breath at a time, regain your focus, remember what is there, and make peace with what is not. A few years ago, I hit one of these mental storms myself, when everything seemed to be going wrong and all I could perceive was, um, was my own futility. It was just a few months after my first marriage had failed. It was also the weekend of my 33rd birthday. And just to add a little bit extra to the mix, it was the same weekend that this Iraq war had begun. And so I had the wonderful obligation and responsibility of trying to say something intelligible and intelligent about this war. My feelings and thoughts about it now are clear. They weren't so clear four years ago. And I was preaching to a congregation that probably is like any congregation in America. At that point, there was a wide array of opinion. There was a diverse array of what was the right thing to do. And so, more than anything, finding the right words, I wanted to find the right spirit and say, even as there are ideas that divide us, there is a greater spirit that unites us and draws us back together. 
So this was my task for that day. Thursday, tried to get an early start that week. Thursday, I tried to sit and write, and I faced not a blank piece of paper, but a blank computer screen. Nothing. Garbage. Cliché thoughts from a tired mind. Yeah. Thursday, a little time left. Friday, sit down, try and write. Garbage. Nothing. Starting to get a little worried now. 48 hours to go. Two days. Still nothing. Saturday morning. Saturday noon. Saturday early afternoon. Saturday 3 o'clock. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Garbage. Nothing at all. So very frustrated and so very angry I was. Starting to build. Starting to build and I didn't like what I was feeling. To add to it, my apartment overlooked the beach. This was back when I lived in South Florida. It was a beautiful South Florida sunny day. It was spring break outside. Blue skies and people frolicking in the surf. And I thought, here I am stuck inside on this gorgeous day. 33 years old and already a failed marriage in the books. All those shiny, happy people outside. That will never be my life again. I was absolutely certain of it. I can't even do my damn job. Couldn't even finish. Couldn't even start this sleeping sermon. Didn't want to call anyone because what would I tell them about how I felt? There's no place to go with any of this. Couldn't write the sermon. And oof, my mind was off to the races. Cue the violins, start the pity party. <laughs> 33, 33, and loveless. That was Jesus' age when he was forsaken by the world, right? Yeah, that was me too. <laughs> oh, ego's a nasty thing, I tell you. 33 and loveless, 33 and watching life pass me by, 33 and I felt old, old at 33, used up like exhaust fumes feel used up, spent, discarded. Gritting my teeth now is going to give it one more try, gritting my teeth with anger, not the best way to try and write something when you're trying to reach out to people. I sat down once more and said, I'm not getting up from this seat until, until I get this sermon written and nothing. Nothing at all. So, you know, just pretty much to keep myself from punching the monitor, I got up. I sat down. I watched a little TV, trying to take myself out of myself. Of course, CNN's right on the first station I turned to. What do I see? Bombs falling on Baghdad. Now that's real suffering, Ken. You idiot. Here you are, pitying yourself. Those are people who are actually suffering. And so I sprinkled a little shame and guilt there among the toxic mix of Self-rage and loathing. That made me feel better. Alone. Alone, a birthday with no one to celebrate with and nothing to celebrate, I felt. And no sermon that was produced. And almost as an act of contempt, I did the last thing I thought I could. Sat and I prayed. But it wasn't <laughs> the kind of prayer. It was, well, I'll edit myself for public consumption here. Why is this happening to me? Why can't I do what I'm supposed to do? Why can't I be what I'm supposed to be? And why is my life like this right now? Why, 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 why? Spinning out, spinning out, spinning out. All anger at myself. All anger at my world. 
as I stood in this kind of prayer with my fists clenched, not clasped, but clenched, I could just feel it getting worse. And then it came to me. The voice of God, my unconscious, the oversoul, I don't think it has a name. Jesus wept. What? You go to Divinity School Seminary, there's always a little quiz at the bottom of a Bible study. What's the shortest sentence in the Bible? Jesus wept. Where'd that come from? I repeated it to myself, Jesus wept. Well, if he could, so could I. And I let go like I was five years old. And all that stuff just came spilling out of me. All that impotence, all that sense that I was really containing this rage and this anger inside of myself just started to flow forth. I surrendered. And as the tears started to flow, and what I could hear in my own mind was, I remember Rosie Greer, It's All Right to Cry, remember the minister and football player, remember Free to Be You and Me? Maybe you heard it when you were a kid, maybe you played it for your kids. That's what was going through my mind. Well, it's all right to cry, I'm doing it anyway, so you might, I might as well make some peace with it. And as those tears came down my face, I started to face for the first time what was there. No more anger, no more sense of saying, five years from now this will be your life again. This is all you're ever going to have. These four walls and a blank computer screen and no one to share your life with and no one particularly you want to share your life with. All of that projection started to go away. And what was left was just fear and sorrow and sadness. That's what was there all along. And that's what I needed to face. At the end, I was empty. I was ready to begin. I felt cleansed. I dried my eyes. I washed my face. went back to my computer. And I sat down. And I wrote until I was finished. An answered prayer. The only answered prayer I needed. I could begin again. Not just with a beginner's mind, but with a beginner's heart. Kierkegaard wrote that in love, we all start from the beginning. Not in perfection do we start from the beginning. Not in hope do we start from the beginning. Not in faith even do we start from the beginning. In love, for our lives, for the opportunity to breathe and to be, in love, we start from the beginning. As an amateur, we get to start from the beginning. It's like this old poem of the Inuit people. I think over again all my small adventures, my fears, those small ones that seem so big, for all the vital things that I had to get and all the vital things that I had to reach. And yet there is only one great thing, the only thing, to live to see the great day that dawns and the light that fills the world. Each day, each moment, there is time to begin again. To begin again in love, to see for the first time, seeing it again for the first time, to greet it for the first time, the light that fills the world. So remember what you need to remember, and remember what you need to forget. Know what you need to know, and know what you can't know. Begin again. Amen. May you live in blessing.